following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Well, we are quickly coming to the end of our journey through Galatians. We'll finish it next week. I want to read a true story. The location and names are omitted, omitted, and as I go through this, you'll understand why. But a pastor a few years ago became involved in adultery, and as a result, his marriage went on the rocks, and his ministry was destroyed. And since he was a strong Christian leader in the community, it had devastating results. His sin not only affected him and his family, but his church splintered in a dozen pieces. Hurting and confused members were scattered all over. And two years after this event happened, this fallen pastor called another pastor in the same city and said, Would you mind if my wife and I came to your church this morning? The pastor said, Why would you ever call me and ask me that question? Of course we wouldn't mind if you came to church. The fallen pastor said, You know I'm divorced from my first wife, and I'm currently with my second wife. Are you aware of this? The pastor said, I am well aware of your situation. The fallen pastor said, We've been trying for eight months now to find a place of worship. The last time we tried was a month ago. We were asked from the pulpit to leave. He went on to say, We've been met at the door of other churches by pastors who heard that we were coming. And they asked us not to come in. They said it would cause too much trouble. The fallen pastor said, Frankly, I don't think we could handle it again if we were asked to leave. My wife is close to a nervous breakdown. If you want, you can put us in a room where no one will see us and let us watch the service. We're willing to do that, to do anything. We just need to be in church. The pastor said, listen, friend, you be at church, and I will welcome you at the front door myself. This brother had fallen and couldn't get up, and that church extended to him Christian fellowship. And God did a cleansing and a healing. That brother was restored only because God used the church to love, accept, and forgive him. If the church is going to be the church... If the church is going to be the force for God in this hurting and confused world that it's called to be, it must learn to love people, accept them, and forgive them. Please hear me well so you don't misunderstand. I am not saying that we have to condone sin and a sinful lifestyle. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. And meet them where they're at. Jesus himself, many times showed us how to love others, yet hate the sin. Jesus looked at the woman that was caught in the act of adultery. He said, I don't condemn you, but now go and sin no more. There will be times we see a brother or sister fall, but I pray that instead of judging them or condemning them for falling, that we learn how to pick them up. This is what Jesus would want us to do. He exhorts us in John 13:34 to 35 
I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. There is power in restoration, in being restored. The Bible is filled with examples of restoration. Today's passage is from Galatians 6, 1-10. Go ahead and follow along with me as I read this. Brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each person should examine his own work, and then he will have a reason for boasting for himself alone, and not in respect to someone else, for each person will have to carry his own load. The one who is taught the message must share all his good things with the teacher. Don't be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows he will also reap, because the one who sows to his flesh will reap corruption from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So we must not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. This is a challenging passage as there appears to be four or five separate and random ideas going on here. The first is restoring someone who's fallen. Second is bearing burdens, sharing with teachers, sowing and reaping, and finally doing good. They are separate from each other as well as seemingly unrelated to the situation that we've gone through so far in the churches of Galatia. However, what Paul is really talking about here are two themes, and those themes are personal responsibility and mutual accountability in the context of communal strife. In the very first verse, Paul is talking about the character of congregational discipline in the life of the early church. Paul uses the Greek word adelphoi, meaning brothers, And he uses this in his letters when he wants to grab the attention of the readers. Paul is also making a claim on them by using this term. If he can call them brother, then the assumption is that they are living the way God intends. And that means they're living in the power of the Spirit. Paul is also reinforcing his earlier confidence that they would hold fast to the truth as genuine believers. Those who are spiritually mature as evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit have a responsibility within the church to be proactive in restoring and reconciling brothers and sisters who have messed up. And all of us, speaking from personal experience, mess up in their lives. Paul is addressing a real-life situation in which acts of wrongdoing were harming the Galatians' relationship to God and with their communal fellowship of fellow believers. And the Greek word that Paul uses for sin or messing up 
does not mean a deliberate sin. Question, how many of you have, have ever stubbed your little toe in a door or in a door frame? For those that are not here for the first time, you may remember I've talked about I have a herniated disc and compressed nerves, so the feeling in, in the toes of my feet are not normal. If I stub my toe, it feels like somebody just hit me with a sledgehammer, sometimes resulting in a temporary expansion of my vocabulary <laughs> or an unintelligible string of partial words or sounds not to be confused with speaking in tongues. Or maybe while you're driving in Thailand, because all of us who drive here know how relaxing driving here can be. When we lived in Okinawa, the church we went to, the pastor told a story one day. And driving in, o- in Okinawa is, is much easier than here, but they do have a little quirk. And when we moved to Okinawa, and I was working with the military at that time, you had to go through a safety briefing before you could get your driver's license. And they told us that when the light turns red, it's normal for three cars to go through the red light. So if you're sitting at a red light and it turns green, do not start right away because it's likely you'll get in an accident. So the pastor one day was driving, and there was a car in front of him, and the light turned yellow, and he assumed that the person in front of them was going to go through the light. They didn't. Resulted in him slamming on his brakes. He didn't get in an accident. But once he stopped, he slammed his hands on the steering wheel, shaking his, his hands in the window, and then he caught himself and said, what did I just do? That's kind of what Paul is talking about here. It's not like, how can I go out and get in trouble, but it's a sin of the moment. Do we tend to judge harshly when those around us slip up? I'm sure all of us know people we probably would not want to share our slips with because of their reaction. But Paul is saying it is a duty of a Christian to help those who slip get right. The Greek, Greek word used for restore literally means to put in order or to restore to its former condition. It is used other places in the New Testament to refer to mending fishing nets. See that in Matthew 4.21 and Mark 1.19. It was also part of the medical vocabulary in ancient Greece where it meant to set a fractured bone or a dislocated bone. The emphasis is not on punishment for the offense, but on the cure to restore and avoid doing it in the future. The restoration is thought of not as a penalty, but as of making something right. What Paul says at the end of verse 1, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted, is equivalent to saying, there but for the grace of God go I. In Galatians, Paul didn't outline specific procedures for church discipline, but it's likely that he knew the one given by Jesus in Matthew 18, 15-17. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two more with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he pays no attention to them, tell the church. 
But if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. And that's a harsh statement about tax collectors in the early days of the church. But this implies the following steps in church discipline. First is a one-on-one discussion. Second would be a discussion in a small group. Then it's brought before the congregation. And finally, formal excommunication. However, from Paul's perspective, discipline was always remedial and never punitive. Consider the case of the immoral brother at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5.5. Turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul was always concerned about the restoration, even if it was only an eternal restoration. In the context of the passage and the overall letter to the Galatians, Paul is likely referring to at least three possible sins here. Because of the false teachers, some of the Galatians may have submitted to the call to be circumcised and were trying to attain perfection through the Mosaic Law. Second, it could have been because of the destructive tendencies present in the Galatian churches as referenced in Galatians 5.15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. And also in 5.26, we must not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Or finally, it could have been a reference to the pagan worship practices described in Galatians 5.19-21 that Tim spoke about last week. Remember what Paul is saying here in this verse. You who are spiritual, not you who are sinless. Spiritual, spiritual maturity is having the mind of Christ, living out the fruit of the Spirit, having a servant's heart, and serving fellow Christians. Forgiveness and being non-judgmental are biblical signs of a mature Christian. Okay, it's time for some Bible gymnastics once again. If you want to follow along. Matthew 5, 7. The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. Matthew six fourteen to 15. For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people... Your father will not forgive your wrongdoing. Matthew 18:35. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Luke 6:36 and 37. Be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. James 2:13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In James 5, 9. Brothers, do not complain about one another, so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Church discipline should always be redemptive and not vindictive. <coughs> Second Corinthians 2, 7. As a result... You should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, this one may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Second Thessalonians 3.15 Yet, don't treat him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. In James 5.19 and 20 
My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. In the spiritual sense, there are only two teams. Team God and the other one. Have any of you ever played team sports or coached team sports? Have you ever tried to seriously hurt one of your teammates? Or laugh if they got hurt? Probably each of us has had a teammate that was that guy and who thought they were all that in a bag of chips too. But I think it's safe to say that none of us would deliberately try to cause serious injury to a teammate on our team. So why would we ever treat our brothers and sisters in that manner? We also shouldn't wait to correct the mistake. Have you seen or been part of a situation where you know a train wreck is coming? Do you just watch or do you try to step into the situation? Another story from our time in Okinawa. I coached youth sports quite extensively. American tackle football, soccer, flag football. <clears throat> One year I was coaching flag football, seven and eight-year-olds. And the fields we played on were the outfield of softball fields. So they just kind of chalked it up, used cones. There was no scoreboard, so you had to keep track of the score. You had to ask the referee for the time. So it was challenging in that aspect. <clears throat> but we were in a fairly tight game late in the second half. And my assistant coaches, one was our son and one was one of the players fathers and the other team had the ball and after every play I'm calling timeout 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 burned all three timeouts and after the third timeout my son came up to me he said dad don't you realize we're winning and I was like you should have told me that after the first timeout so I wouldn't have been doing this fortunately it didn't cause a problem with the result of the game but when we see something happening don't wait if you wait too long, it may be too late to avoid the consequences of that train wreck. This even goes if we see somebody above us in the food chain, our supervisor, our boss. If they're doing something wrong, bring it to their attention. Effective leaders don't want to be surrounded by yes-men. And if that describes your boss, I'm sorry, um, Maybe you want to find a new job or try to mold your boss in a different way. And I've been in that situation, and it's not a lot of fun. We should look out for family members who go wrong. Don't we try and correct wrong behavior in our blood family? Those of us who are parents, who have brothers and sisters, if we see them doing something wrong, we are normally pretty quick about correcting it but we had the same responsibility to the brothers and sisters in our spiritual family. We do it in a spirit of gentleness and love. Gentleness does not mean leniency or overlooking the transgression. Gentleness is a fruit of the spirit that cannot coexist with a harsh and censorious spirit. It does mean correction should be done with a sensitivity and no air of self-righteous superiority. Church discipline should never become legalistic and contrary to the law of love. Yet restoration can't be accomplished without confrontation that may require firm words and a stern rebuke. 
Let's remember Luther's advice to a pastor responsible for restoring a fallen brother. Run unto him and reaching out your hand, raise him up. Comfort him with sweet words and embrace him with motherly arms. Is it a sign of the spiritual malaise that exists in the church today that spiritual discipline is hardly ever seen? Church discipline does serve two purposes. The primary one is always to restore a fallen brother or sister to right standing with the Father. But it also defines the boundaries between church and the culture and helps to preserve the purity of the church's witness in a fallen world. In verse 2, Paul is talking about sharing the load, burden. The Greek word here literally means a heavy weight or stone that must be carried a long distance. In a figurative sense, it means any oppressive ordeal or hardship that is difficult to bear. Jesus was referring to this, Matthew 23, 4. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus was talking about the Pharisees and all their rules, but Paul's using it here metaphorically about the false teaching of the Judaizers placing a heavy burden upon the believers in Galatia. It was a weight of moral shortcomings and mistakes. It was designed to awaken sorrow, shame, and remorse in the offender. From this, we learn four important truths about practical Christian living from Paul's telling the Galatians to bear one, another, one another's burdens. First, all Christians have burdens, but they differ in size and shape. Some may suffer from temptations or moral issues. Some may have physical or mental ailments. Some may have family issues, or there's a whole host of other issues it could be a burden. Second is a reality of burdens. The myth of self-sufficiency. God does not intend for us to carry our burdens by ourselves in isolation. Self-sufficiency is not a mark of bravery, but a sign of pride. And such a conceited attitude leads to two fundamental failures in relationships. One is a refusal to bear the burdens of others is that would be too menial for us because we think we're something special. Or the refusal to allow others to help us is that would be an admission of weakness and need. The third reality of burdens, the imperative mutuality. Because we all have burdens and no one is self-sufficient, God designed the body of Christ so that its members are priests to one another. We are to bear each other's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ by loving one another. Mature Christians are to help the weaker, less mature ones. Romans 15.1 Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. God brings the members of the congregation into mutual relationship. 1 Corinthians 12, 25, 26. So that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. 
If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Paul, more than anybody else, could have written the book on burdens. Just one example from his life. 2 Corinthians 7, 5, and 6. In fact, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way. Conflicts on the outside, fears on the inside. But God, who comforts the humble, comfort us by the arrival of Titus. John Stott wrote about this. God's comfort was not given to Paul through his private prayer and waiting upon the Lord but through the companionship of a friend and through the good news which he brought. Human friendship in which we bear one another's burdens is part of the purpose of God for his people. So we should not keep our burdens to ourselves, but rather seek a Christian friend who will help to bear them with us. The duty of bearing one another's burdens is stated in the imperative mood. It is not an option but a command. Implicit in this idea is that we live in community with one another and not isolation for our benefits. There was research done on a group of 7,000 people over a nine-year period in California. And it showed that people with weak relational connections were three times more likely to die than those with strong relational connections. And people who had bad health, bad health habits, like smoking and eating the wrong kinds of food, but had strong relational ties, lived significantly, significantly longer than people who had great health habits, but lived more isolated lives. I think this proves that it's better to eat Twinkies in groups than broccoli alone, or cheesecake, or fill in the blank with what you like. A second set of research was documented in the Journal of the American Medical Association, where 276 people volunteered to be exposed to the common cold virus. Now, I'm not sure why you would want to do that voluntarily, but they did. And this research found that people who had strong relational connections were four times better at fighting illness than those who didn't. And people with strong relational connections were significantly less susceptible to catching cold had fewer viruses in their system, and produced less mucus. So we now have scientific proof that unfriendly people really are snottier than friendly people. <laughs> the end of verse 2, Paul talks about fulfilling the law of Christ. This is the only place in Paul's writings that he used the term the law of Christ. For Paul, the law of Christ was a whole tradition of Jesus' ethical teaching confirmed by his character and conduct and reproduced within his people by the power of the Spirit. The yoke of the Mosaic Law had become a pressing burden to the Galatian churches. Yet the yoke of Christ is light and easy. Matthew 11:29 and 30. All of you, take up my yoke and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. <clears throat> And the law of Christ is the principle of love. John 13, 34, which I read at the beginning. I give you a new command to love one another, just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. It is not our place to judge, and there is only one judge, and it's not me, and it's not you. Matthew 7, 1 to 6. 
Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, there's a log in your eye? Hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Verse 2 is all about our responsibility to others in the present tense. In verses 3 to 5, Paul addresses the problem of pride. Verse 3, be humble so you don't stumble too. We should judge ourselves before we judge others. Don't fall into the temptation of pride. When we compare, we see ourselves better than the one who fell. And that leads to a condescending attitude, you fell and I didn't. Sometimes we may even secretly be glad that they stumbled, sort of like, I told you so, but with an attitude. Paul warns us to test ourselves through self-examination to see if there are any cracks in our moral armor. And he deceives himself occurs only here in the entire New Testament in verb form, and it means to, to, to seduce oneself into error. The noun form occurs in Titus 1.10. For there are also many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from Judaism. Self-deception is the worst kind of blindness. In verse 4, Paul talks about examining, and that's to test with a view toward approval. The Greek word is used in the same context as the firing test, fiery testing of gold to determine its purity. In order to test something, there must be a standard against which to test it. True, true self-examination is not just taking your spiritual pulse on a regular basis, but submitting your thoughts, your attitudes, and your actions to the will of God and the mind of Christ contained in Scripture. Don't compare yourself to others. From Scripture, we don't know for sure if the churches in Galatia were like the one in Corinth which had an overload of spiritual gifts. But there had been a display of miracles, as we saw in Galatians 3.5, and if the comparison to the Corinthian church is correct, then it's possible that they were becoming prideful over their use of spiritual gifts and even compared their scores on the, to each other on the spiritual gifts aptitude test. Paul says, stop and test yourself. God will not hold you accountable to the gifts given to me, and he won't hold me accountable to the gifts given to you. Instead, ask, am I more loving and patient than last year? Am I more kind and faithful? If one brings themselves honestly before God, they will not be interested in comparing themselves to someone else because this type of honest self-examination will result in confession, not competition, in humility and not pride. And in verse 5, carrying your own load is completely different from carrying each other's burdens. It's really an end times viewpoint. Load is referring to a ship's cargo or a soldier's knapsack. And it refers to our responsibility to God on the day of judgment. You can't carry my pack, and I cannot carry your pack. We will each answer for ourselves 
when we stand before Christ. And the verb is future tense. Paul is looking ahead to when each of us must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will answer for what we've done with our lives from the moment of salvation to the end of our physical lives. And I don't know about you, but when I consider the amount of time that I've wasted with meaningless meaningless things, it's quite convicting. Will our work be judged shoddy or worthless, or will we receive a crown of righteousness? 2 Timothy 4.8 There is reserved for me in the future the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. <clears throat> Verse 5 is about our responsibility to ourselves, but in the future tense. Verse 6 is my favorite verse in the passage. Pay the pastor. Not really. But it does say spiritual people should support teachers. And it seems like this verse almost stands alone to what happened to the verses prior and those that come after. But Paul is being practical here. The church had its teachers. In those days it was common for the body of Christ to share according to need. When a pastor or teacher shares instruction to the student, is to respond by sharing all good things. The verb tense is present active imperative. It is not a suggestion. Pastoring and teaching take time. Those that devote their lives to this calling should expect to earn a living. 1 Corinthians 9:11-14. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits for you, don't we even more? However, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. And also in Luke 10, 7, Jesus is talking. Remain in the house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. And this principle still applies today. The primary responsibility of pastors and elders is to teach and preach the word. All other aspects of ministry, no matter how worthy, are subordinate to this task. There is a special relationship between those who preach and those who hear, and a workman is still worthy of his keep. On the other hand, overcompensation is a dangerous road. Those that develop a large ministry or are blessed by material goods can easily be seduced by the love of money as the root of all kinds of evil, creating an appetite that is never satisfied for more. For the pastor who embraces the comfortable lifestyle, that he is a mere figurehead of his church and forgets that he must stand before Christ to give an account. Several weeks ago, there was an article about the former female lead pastor of a progressive church in New York. I won't go into all the sordid details of their theology, but she was fired for some quite disturbing misconduct. However, what was even more interesting is that her salary was $250,000 a year with an $8,000 a month housing allowance, and she had just asked for a raise of $100,000 a month. 
There's also a pastor in Georgia who has a fleet of jets to allow himself to minister more effectively. And somehow he has seduced the congregation into believing he really needs this fleet of jets. Verses 7 to 10 talk about sowing and reaping. Verse 7, don't play with God. He knows all things. The Greek verb for mocked is found only here in the New Testament. And it literally means to turn up your nose in mockery or contempt. Think about that for a second. I'm sure all of us at some point have has had somebody turn up their nose at us, whether a coworker, a child. And when they do that, how do you feel? Think about us turning up our nose to an infinitely holy God. You cannot outwit God, and the seed you plant will sprout your harvest, good or bad. Verse 8, fleshly living, human effort. Corruption in the original Greek paints the picture of a rotten corpse in the process of decomposition. And the context of this letter pertains to following the false teachings of the Judaizers. They are slowly rotting away. For us, it is a light that satisfies the cravings of a depraved nature. God can, but doesn't always remove the consequences of our sins. Sin against your body, and you can pay with poor health. Sin against your family, and hearts will be broken. The scars remain, even if we are forgiven. Hosea 8, 7a Indeed, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Think of David and Bathsheba. Even David, a man after God's own heart, screwed up and it had long-lasting consequences on the rest of his life. But praise God that we are led by the Spirit. We have a life of free grace and eternal life. And Paul is referring to the consummation of salvation when Christ returns. In the same sense as Jesus in Luke 18, 29-30. So he said to them, I assure you, there is no one who has left a house, wife, or brothers, parents, or children because of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more at this time in eternal life in the age to come. The splendor of the age to come and the glory of heaven beckons us forward. In verse 9, have endurance in doing good things. In Galatians chapters 5 and 6, Paul instructed the Galatian Christians to do certain things. To expel the agitators. To love your neighbors as yourself. To keep in step with the Spirit by displaying the fruits of the Spirit. To practice church discipline by restoring those who fall. To bear each other's burdens. To examine yourself in the light of the judgment seat of Christ and to provide material support for the teachers of the faith. These combined are the doing good, is equivalent to fulfilling the law of Christ. And why did Paul feel he needed to remind the Galatians and us? Because humans are inherently forgetful and lazy. I know because I is one. Regardless of whether they were seeing results, Paul encouraged them to keep pressing forward as the reaping will come 
in God's time. It is easy for us to get discouraged when we don't see results according to our timetable. Think about how William Carey felt. He spent seven years in India before the first person converted. One of the greatest frustrations in Christian ministry and a principal cause for weariness in doing good is the inability to calculate the spiritual outcome of faithful labor in ministry. We should never put too much stock in visible results. God is sovereign and has promised that his word will not return void. The ultimate harvest is assured, but will only come at the proper time. In verse 10, work for the good of all people. Once we know God, we should live a life of service. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved to good works. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. Christian ethics has a dual focus. One is universal, work for the good of all. But one is specific, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. All people are created in the image of God and infinitely precious. But Paul is saying that there is an extra obligation to do good to those who are part of the family, those who share a supernatural bond. J. Brown stated, Every poor and distressed man had a claim on me for pity and, if I can afford it, for active exertion and monetary relief. But a poor Christian has a far stronger claim on my feelings, my labors, and my property. He is my brother, equally interested as myself in the blood and love of the Redeemer. I expect to spend an eternity with him in heaven. He is the representative of my unseen Savior, and he considers everything done to his poor afflicted as done to himself. For a Christian to be unkind to a Christian is not only wrong, it is monstrous. Think about the last sentence again. For a Christian to be unkind to a Christian is not only wrong, it is monstrous. So how do we apply what Paul has written to our lives? Besides the earlier application of Twinkies and groups, there are several applications from this passage. To be generous in supporting Jesus' church. Financial. Those that have been here for a while, you know that we raised, not just here, but corporately, a very large sum of money to support Imran to get them moved to Canada so they can set up a new household. It was beyond all expectations to raise that money that quickly. We can also be generous with our time. Those who volunteer, it takes time. Depending on how they serve, it could mean quite a bit of time spent outside of the church service. Those that lead worship and part of a worship team, there's hours and hours of practice. Each of us, if we are a believer, has talent. Each of us has has at least one spiritual gift and a priestly identity. And if you're not using your talents to edify the body of Christ, the question is, why? A church made up almost entirely of ministry professionals should know this better than anyone. 
we have mutual accountability to each other. As a spiritual family in the body of Christ, we need to hold each other accountable, but correct with a gentle spirit and a desire for restoration and not punishment. Help one another as each of us will need help at some time. Each of us has a personal responsibility, and this is a delicate subject. And I know that we have counselors in this room. So especially in light of advancements in the area of psychology, where our behavior can be traced back to previous experiences in our lives. We can be in our shape by our past, both positively and negatively. We can and should have sympathy for those who have been negatively shaped. But the Bible teaches that each one of us are personally responsible for everything that we do and everything that we are, regardless of the causes and problems we might have. We can't blame our parents or our kids or anyone else for our lives when we stand before God. We own it. I can't remember if it was last month or two months ago, there was an article that happened on a cruise line. And it was Royal Caribbean. And it was a three-generation family went on a vacation. And a grandfather was holding a small child. I think it was two- or three-year-old child. <clears throat> and it was on one of the top decks. And Kyung and I have been on one of their cruise ships, so I kind of know the layout on how it probably was where this happened. In a, what happened was horrific. You can't downplay that. But the grandfather was holding this child is around 14th or 15th deck and there's glass that extends up above your height but the top portion can be opened up the fixed portion probably comes to your chest level and the grandfather was holding the child and thought that the window was closed and went to lean the child against it and the child went out the window and was killed the initial report was that they were going to arrest the grandfather for homicide, accidental, but still responsible. Then the lawyers got involved, and they're suing the cruise line. Now, again, as horrific as that incident is, and knowing how the construction is on those ships, a two- or three-year-old cannot climb up and fall out that window. Personal responsibility severely lacking in our society today. Paul says each of us will have to carry his own load. However, we don't need to live in a spirit of fear and despair. Jesus paid the penalty to restore us, to fill us with a spirit of hope, and to carry our load through the power of the Holy Spirit. The finished work of Jesus on the cross gives us the power to live a life of mutual accountability and personal responsibility. Let us pray. Father, we're just so thankful for your, for your word and for your instruction. Thankful for the spirit that lives in each one of us, Father. And I just pray that each of us would have a renewed understanding of the responsibility we have not only for our own lives to answer to as we stand before you, but the responsibility we have to each other as members of the body of Christ, 
as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. To help each other. To support each other. To hold one, one another accountable for our actions. And to restore each other in a spirit of gentleness and love. And Father, I just pray that each of us would just put that in into every every cell of our being that we would live with that spirit of love and gentleness but accountability both to ourselves and to each other. Father, we just thank you so much. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.